Hello, John Elder here, science editor with The New Daily. Welcome to the COVID Conversation. Today, my guest is Professor Vishal Kishore, Director of the Health Transformation Lab and a Professor of Public Policy and Innovation at RMIT. The Health Transformation Lab was launched in March to creatively confront the weaknesses in our health system and other areas of social policy. Now, I'm assuming, Vishal, that the timing of the public launch wasn't designed to coincide with an emerging crisis. The pandemic was on and starting to bite. What was your response to suddenly finding your new project effectively thrown in the deep end? John, a beautiful, a beautiful question. I, I seem to, I found in my in my uh, career and in my intellectual uh, life that I, I've often found myself in these interesting and peculiar situations where at the one hand, uh, something terrible is happening and yet it's a particularly pertinent something in respect of my own area of study. So I found this during the global financial crisis, I was running a series of arguments that um, made a hell of a lot more sense after the global financial crisis hit. Um, and now again with this pandemic situation. Uh, but I think the, the, I think what this situation has really shown to us in the lab is that the thesis is basically right. We need a kind of agile infrastructure, an agile collaborative infrastructure that can tackle uh, major questions and problems in health in really anti-disciplinary ways. Um, by way of just a, a small example, in respect of this situation, uh, we've we've got a we've got a team of fellows that includes an immunologist, um, a, a emergency care nurse, a data scientist, and a political um, philosopher and political economist. And the kinds of ideas that they've generated, each of their special skills have been um, important in how we've thought about, for example, point of care testing or new models of healthcare. Um, all of their skills have been important, but none of them have been enough. So they've needed to work together. And that's the thesis of the lab. So um, as difficult as the situation is, it's been really wonderful to see that there are ways to solve these kinds of problems if you get collaboration uh, right. Look, the first thing I heard about the lab and about you, Vishal, was that you developed a loneliness brooch. This was designed to be worn by elderly people and works by alerting family members that granddad or nana are having few social interactions and are getting lonely. Tell me about the brooch and the thinking behind it. It's actually a beautiful story, um, John. So one of the members of my lab, before he was a member of our lab, worked in aged care. Uh, and he actually had this idea and started working with a few people at RMIT. And it's basically drawn from the insight that um, the kinds of conversation that you are having, and particularly the number of words that you are speaking, and to an extent, the length of the words that you're speaking, um, can be a very important lead indicator about your state of social isolation and indeed loneliness. So the insight was, if there was a way for us to measure the number of words that people were um, speaking, put that through an algorithm. Um, could we get some understandings about when people start to become at risk of becoming lonely and all of the slew of uh, health and uh, mental health and indeed social problems that are thrown up by, by loneliness? 
So that was the original idea. Some designers from RMIT and um, uh, and this person, uh, this clinician who works in aged care, cooked up the idea a little bit, um, and it won a series of awards. It was it was uh, a, a really great intervention. And where we are now with it is really exciting. So we're just miniaturizing a little bit of technology to be able to fit into a, the smallest possible brooch, and it's going to go into. Uh, a clinical or something like a clinical trial process in an aged care facility just as soon as we're able to get into aged care facilities in a more uh, in a more fluid way so it's extremely exciting that's that's there's a bit of an irony there isn't it because you can't actually get into them to to deal with these lonely people because they're they're actually cut off no visitors allowed I understand the brooch is designed, the technology is designed to sort of fit into a metal or or something. And part of that idea is is that, is that you're not sticking out. Like I, I'm, I've got my loneliness brooch on. It's a bit like that that film, The Lonely Guy, when Steve Martin arrives at a restaurant and he arrives there to have a meal alone and suddenly there's a spotlight on him and everyone stops eating and everyone's staring at him because they know he's lonely. There's this sort of... The whole film was based on this kind of stigma of, of being a, the lonely guy. And, of course, I suppose one of the ironies here is that, is that as the brooch technology has emerged, it's a time when physical distinct rules are in place. And so personally responding to the problem uh, can be limited to video calls uh, or, or telephone. I, is it enough? You know, John, it, it's totally right. And I think it goes to the, the question of, it's all well and good to have these technologies that can do really interesting things for us. It's great to be able to have a wearable that can measure uh, the number of words that a person is saying. It's really great to be able to have tools, um, video conferencing tools and so forth that can allow us to communicate at scale and at distance. But in order for those things to really, really get traction in people's lives, they need to be designed to fit into the human experience of technology. Um, and this is something that we see over and over again. You can see it with the, with, with the loneliness brooch. We are trying to design it so that the way that it is as a piece of technology doesn't make it harder for people to use, doesn't make it less desirable, doesn't make it, doesn't inhibit the impact that it can make. And I think in respect of questions of, is video conferencing enough to deal with things like loneliness? I think I think resoundingly not. Um, we've been doing some interesting focus groups with students um, at RMIT who have been um, learning primarily online. And it's really interesting to hear what they find difficult about the environment, what they find difficult about a, a fully digital or a fully online environment or learning experience. And it's time and time again, John, it's the, it's the human, it's the casual, it's the social, it's the empathetic um, it's the fact that they that, that social cues aren't there. It's the fact that body language isn't there. These are all things that are make that make the the digital experience and the digital environment harder. And I think that's part of the reason why, at the same time as you know the usage of certain platforms like Skype and Zoom and various other things have gone through the roof recently, and we're hearing a lot about about it for good and for ill. None of that, like, that's great, but it hasn't replaced, has it, that sort of nature strip community that you're seeing in many streets across the country, uh, the, the teddy bear hunts that have been set up for children, the, the having cups of tea over the front fence. It turns out to, to be the case that there is something irreplaceable about true human-to-human -human interaction, that 
we can we can go a long way with things like video conferencing um, and digital and online experiences. They're really important, but the more we can bend those to be human in nature, I think all the better. Well, one might say that loneliness is a prevailing currency at the moment, that perhaps many of us could benefit with a device that lets people know how we're going. And you yeah. have an idea that, that, that understanding loneliness will help us avoid it in a time of isolation. You've actually written a formula for loneliness. Now, I've read a, a neat quote from the PDF uh, that explains that formula. The social pain of loneliness evolved as a signal that one's connections to others are weakening and to motivate the repair and maintenance of the connections to others that are needed for our health and well-being and for the survival of our genes. I mean, that kind of, uh, it kind of makes it a bigger deal than, than I think most people would, would, would give a thought to. Yeah, I, I, John, I think you're right. And I think, you know, this kind of goes to where you started, John. In a sense, I think one of the things that this situation has really taught us, it used to be the case that for most people in most people's minds, most of the time, loneliness was something that happened at the edges. You know, it was something that happened, you know, to older people in, uh, you know, who were living in isolated ways, to young people who um, were feeling socially disconnected and alienated in particular other kinds of ways. But actually, one of the things that we have seen over the last few weeks um, is really that everybody's had an experience of social, uh, of, of isolation of one form or another. And I think people are recognizing the difficulties of, uh, of being without others or being in a way that is less connected to others. And I think that, uh, I think we're really, I think this is an important moment for the way that we think about loneliness because we've just conducted the world's biggest experiment in isolation. Now it's something that everybody's experienced in a particular kind of a way. And hopefully the lessons that we can learn and garner from this will help us to move uh, loneliness from what appears to be a side issue, though it isn't, but into the mainstream of how we think about health, mental health, and well-being. But I might say, um, John, in respect of your uh, the point that you made about the formula, uh, exactly right. So uh, um, well before this um, pandemic started, we recognized that loneliness uh, is an important, uh, it's importantly and, and terribly connected to a whole bunch of um, social health and human problems. And so we thought we should try to study it a little bit. And when you go and you confront the literature on loneliness, you often find everybody defines it kind of differently. Um, what it is and what it isn't is very confusing to get a handle on. So we thought as an experiment, and we, we've got data scientists and immunologists and all kinds of people in the lab, we thought, well, what if we tried to clarify what's going on with loneliness by sticking, uh, sticking a formula around it? And what we were really able to use the formula to do was highlight a couple of things that are often missed in the debate about loneliness and that I think are really being driven home to us right now. And that is loneliness isn't about being alone. Loneliness is about a difference between the kinds of social connections that we want and the kinds of social connections that we get. So you can be alone and perfectly happy if you're getting what you want in respect of social connection. But if you don't get what you want in terms of social connection, uh, let's say the connections aren't as high quality as you want them to be, there aren't enough of them, or importantly, they aren't important enough to you. So I can be surrounded by people all the time, 
but lack a, for example, romantic partner or my parent. But there's, there's, a, there's a question, though, of, of wanting it, but I think for a lot of people it's actually needing it and maybe being able to recognise it. Yeah. Those physical distancing rules seem to be working, mm. but the untold story is the extent to which they're being flouted. I see it happening all along my street. I think the nature strip parties that I've seen, they tend to be handled responsibly, but people are having visitors, people are arranging to meet down the coast. Now on the Transformation Lab site, as part of your response to COVID-19, you have a list of issues presented in summary, one of them being rise of the health-promoting individual. Now you write, in all kinds of ways, the citizen is being asked to take on health system roles from scanning and assessing risk to imposing and monitoring quarantine. These are uncharted territories for individuals who are seeking new ways of coping with these roles and their implications. All of that takes an earnest approach to self-responsibility is, is, is how it strikes me. And when you look at the way that uh, rules are being flouted and people think, oh, well, you know, I'm okay. I have to ask, are, are we up to it? So I, I think this is a great question, John. In a sense, I think the individual is being asked, as we say in, in the quote that you just uh, read out, the individual is, asked, is being asked in all kinds of ways to take a certain sense of responsibilities. And um, the question is, is are, are individuals doing that? Um, and I think you're right that not all individuals are consistently doing that. Um, I, and I think there's kind of there's sort of two, there's sort of two kinds of things, uh, in a sense, uh, John. There's a tension in a lot of what we are asking people to do right now between the kind of the dominant mode of thinking about what it is to be a, an individual and a citizen in the world at the moment. So where for the last few centuries, we've been obsessed with um, increasing autonomy, increasing rights, increasing self-determination and increasingly um, fewer um, restrictions on a person's ability to do what they want to do. The rise of the individual. The rise of the individual, John, precisely right. And I think what this COVID-19 situation is doing is trying to renegotiate that in a particular way. And I think that that's a, that's a difficult thing at individual levels um, and indeed at kind of at the levels of, uh, of kind of social mores and values. Somebody said to me a little while ago, I don't think Australians will tolerate lockdown for particularly much longer than May. And I think I think there's there's really something in that. As, and as you say, um, some people are not able to tolerate lockdown even in the in the current situation. I tend to look to the future really and and think, okay, Australia especially, I think we've got off so light it's it's a it's a miracle. But I, I do look to the future and think this is a test run. Look, there is the question of why do some people find physical distancing more difficult than others, but. Turning that around, and I think a little bit more excitingly, why do some people thrive? Before the plague arrived, my ancient parents were often sounding downbeat on the phone. Oh, you know, I'm just feeling my age, you know. Now that the entire world is facing an existential threat, they've never been cheerier. <laughs> and I suspect they're not. It's true. Uh, look, I suspect they're not alone. And if I really want to look at a, a precedent, I was in Berlin, East Berlin, in 1989, and it was just before the wall came down. Now, the people I, I met in East Berlin, while it was an exciting idea that suddenly the country would open up, they'd be free, they were also hesitant at losing some of the things they'd gained. 
emotional closeness with people, that sort of thing. They had a quality of life that had somehow flourished under great oppression. I think that's very interesting. I, I agree with you, John. I think, uh, in a sense, uh, I love the story about your, your parents. That's brilliant because, I mean, in a glib way, you could say, look, misery loves company and we're all miserable <laughs> now. And so, you know, um, uh, but, but kind of slightly less flippantly, um, there is something, I think, that we're seeing at the moment, which I can't think of another example since the end of the Cold War that you could consistently say this. But this is, we are feeling a kind of fellow feeling with people not only next door or not only in the next state, but actually across the globe in a way that I don't think we could consistently have said we have for a very, very long time. So the sense of in it togetherness and the sense of a combined and collective purpose, I think is a really interesting dynamic that we're seeing. And I think it's pointing to something, as you say, that um, that is that can be lost when you shift paradigms to you know from uh, highly kind of even if they are oppressive even if the rules are harsh um, situations where you felt commonly with others you felt a sense of fellow feeling you felt shoulder to shoulder and it turns out to be the case that we humans love purpose um, and we love connecting around purpose and I think there's some there's a dynamic that we're seeing here about uh, about that. The virus has achieved something that tons of theory and political speeches hasn't been able to. It's been able, it's shown us that even when we don't see it, we are connected to others. You know, when 9-11 happened, there was a very interesting response from some people where um, it was a horrific thing to see um, on television, a uh, horrific thing to think about. And some people responded with the idea where they actually felt, oh, my God, this is payback because we've treated Arabs so badly for 100 years or whatever it was. And, and then there was a pushback on that idea. But it, 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 it suddenly brought an, an interesting response from people that this terrible thing happening made them actually suddenly think outside their own sphere to a bigger, broader question. And, of course, it was a very awkward time to even – Try and have, a, have have that talk. What do you think of that? Yeah, I think you're. I think you're absolutely right. And I think you see the same dynamic now, don't you? Uh, in respect of there's a kind of an increasing idea that, uh, again, in a way that we started to get a few seeds of with bushfire and climate change um, right. over uh, over the last recent while. But this is really this has really rammed the point home, hasn't it? That my God, the way that we live. Um, uh, you know, the way that we uh, perhaps uh, run certain kinds of markets in particular parts of the world, the way that we travel, the way that we um, uh, treat uh, our individual liberties versus collective responsibilities, the way that we live in the world, have we contributed to this situation that we're now in? And, and I think this this shift is a very, I think you're right, it's this perspective shift that can happen um, in these sorts of moments. And I think the real question uh, uh, but but it doesn't always last. So I think um, global financial crisis is a really good example of where there was a kind of a shifting of the sands. I mean, I don't know if you, I'm sure you remember, John, that even the Financial Times in the UK was printing things about the death of capitalism, et cetera, et cetera. And this is just not a good way to organize yourself and uh, 
you know, markets run rampant, just destroy people's lives, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It was like you thought you were reading a Marxist track when you were reading this stuff. Well, that's that's right. I mean, there was this sort of, and I think it, it's, it's what made it work against true self-reflection. There was this idea of comeuppance, and I think that's the same with the virus, this notion of comeuppance. And that gets you thinking, oh, my God, what have we done? Unfortunately, it can leave you stalled as to asking what to do next, which we will get to. But for the moment, I just want to go back to the brooch for, for a yeah. moment, the loneliness brooch. You know, at first it made me think of poor old Poppy staring at the telephone, willing the damn thing to ring. And there does seem to be a lot of technology being developed, you know, care robots and such, that seem designed to ensure that we never have to go near an old person again. And we tend to routinely park our children with technology. Are we offloading too much of human interaction to gadgetry? I think it's a, I mean, John, this is, this is something that we care a lot about in the lab. So uh, we have this, this, um, this concept of, 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 of healthcare cybernetics. And um, I think it's, there's, a, there's this interesting balance. So we human beings are tool makers and technology is nothing but a tool. And I think we, um, sometimes we get, we fetishize the tool that we just made and we forget that it, we made it and we made it for a particular purpose. It shouldn't come back to dominate us. Um, and I think in a lot of ways, it, you know, if you think about like debates around screen time and digital marketing and all of these sorts of things, uh, you know, we, we look at these things and we say, oh, my screen time's really, you know, it's really doing damage to me. It's causing a lot of social problems. Well, we made that tool and now we're, we are asking ourselves, what is the best way to use that tool to optimize human health, well-being, flourishing, whatever you'd like to call it? And I think in all kinds of ways, we are not doing the best job in the world um, of thinking about the human element of these technology deployments. The fact that a, that a tool can do a thing doesn't mean, number one, that that's what a person's going to use it for, or number two, that that's the end of the story. Um, and so I think the human dimension of, of, of technology is something that, um, you know, lots of great people are, are thinking about it and working on it, and that's really wonderful. But I think the more digital that we get, uh, the more technological that we get, it should actually prompt us to also um, be even more sharp about the human and the ethical at the same time as we de develop the technological and the digital. Well, it's certainly on the wish list. I have another quote from the Transformation Lab. It goes thusly, uh, the quiet spectre of change has become a howling beast, demanding our attention in new ways. Not since World War II have individuals lived with such pervasive, immediate, urgent uncertainty in the most basic areas of life. Now, you've worked in public uh, policy, Vishal. I understand you've talked about the need for ra radical, agile and innovative public policy and action at this time. The Age uh, newspaper this week ran an editorial saying this was the time for bold ideas with a leaning on government policy. But how bold do we need to be? To what extent uh, do, do we need to investigate and question our fundamentals? Are we looking to establish a new kind of human currency maybe? We need to be extremely bold. Uh, you're quite right, John, and I think implied in your question. So I think, John, one of the things that this has been going on for a little while, but again, and, and we've had calls like this 
um, uh, punctuated every few years based on the most recent global financial crisis or, or before that 9-11, et cetera, et cetera. Um, do we need a fundamental rethink? What are the sets of ideas that should inform that? And I think I, I often think that part of our problem is we are operating in a policy and economic paradigm that has that has really shown its weakness to us. And I think it's time for us to fundamentally question that paradigm. And let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. So if you think about uh, uh, our economic situation, we in Australia have run a, an open economy, um, relatively free movement of goods and people uh, economic paradigm for the last little while. You'll see the Prime Minister has been hinting at for the last few weeks uh, and, and said again yesterday that he'd like to think of an, an Australian economy that is, inverted commas, self-sufficient. And I think, though I think the term self-sufficiency may not quite be the right one for us to use because I think it, it makes us think of uh, sort of insulated Australia or insulated economy rather than, uh, uh, which I don't think is particularly helpful or useful. But I think that, that the PM's pointing to something that is very, very important, which is we might need to rethink the way that we talk about, think, and plan our economy. Um, and a good example is we in Australia have not had a sophisticated economic development policy um, uh, in recent times. We have had the reliance on a particular policy framework, open trade, and kind of let the market drive specialization, et cetera, et cetera. Um, in our economy and let the chips fall relatively where they may with the with a, a nice welfare state undergirding uh, to catch to catch the cracks and I think actually what we are now wondering about is number one is that paradigm going to be helpful for us and number two might we like to make more self-conscious choices about the sort of economy that we have about the sort of industries that we nurture, about the kinds of adaptation capability that we build into our economies, and indeed the kind of work and the kind of jobs that we think is, is good to provide in our economy. I've been thinking about this a lot, and I've been thinking, mm. uh, you know, I kind of feel sorry for the Prime Minister in the sense that trying to find the right language at the moment, just for a start, is a, is a big job. But, you know, I've written a bit and I've talked to a fair bit of people about new technologies in manufacturing. Some great work being done, say, at Swinburne University, at Deakin, uh, probably at RMIT. And, and it tends to be these technologies that we develop and then we, we lose overseas. Mm. What I think there's this great opportunity, you know, the idea we've kind of written off the manufacturing sector but a kind of new manufacturing sector could be possible. There's a whole lot of I see great new opportunities in where we're at at the moment. We're going to we're going to be coming out ahead of the rest of the world in our recovery from the virus. We're going to be uh, uh, ahead economically. Um, we, we've actually got a little bit of a head of steam up to actually uh, uh, achieve a, a pretty much a new economic society if we if we really pull our fingers out, so to speak. And looking ahead to future crises, I guess I'd, I'd ask. Can we adopt a two-speed social and financial infrastructure? The financial sector seems to be key in how well we survive and thrive these events. Can you foresee a system where we are able to put the world on pause for six months at a time with necessary contractions of how we live, but perhaps with less widespread hardship? That in part is what we have to build towards because um, the science is thinking, well, 
It's happened now. It's going to happen again. Yeah, I think, I think John, there, there is this idea of building the infrastructure of adaptability into our economy and our society is really key. And I think this is what you're talking about. I think we build infrastructure, we build roads, we build all kinds of things uh, 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 that we know we need for economic activity. And I think one of the things that we, uh, we, are now we should now really turn our mind to is how do we build the infrastructure of adaptability, the infrastructure that allows us to turn on and off different parts of, of the economy as necessary in particular moments in ways that make us more resilient to shocks, more adaptive to change. And I think your example of advanced manufacturing is a really nice, uh, is a really nice one in this regard. So um, you, you will probably be well aware that Australia, um, and, and when I say Australia, I mean everywhere from, uh, from, from Victoria to, to Queensland and to South Australia, we have a remarkable capability here in uh, med tech, in medical technology innovation. We've got mm -hmm. some of the best healthcare in the world. We've got some of the most sophisticated providers in the world. And we've got a very uh, uh, well-funded research sector that produces fantastic innovation in science and engineering and, and technology. The question that you rightly put is, well, how do we capture some of those gains um, and not allow everything to just flee overseas, offshore? And I think areas like medtech, an area that I have uh, quite a lot to, to do with, um, and including through certain models uh, like the Australia, Australia's National MedTech Catalyst, which is called the MedTech Actuator. Um, there's an unbelievable gain, there's an un unbelievable opportunity there to not only create the technologies that make us, uh, make human beings flourish and thrive in better ways, perhaps make us more adaptive to the COVID-19 or other future pandemic situations, but also um, can revivify elements of our economy like manufacturing in really interesting uh, in really interesting sorts of ways uh, i'm aware of a couple of fantastic companies that have uh, been like producing really important things that have been useful in this kind of environment ventilators um, and ppe uh, particularly masks very sophisticated masks um, and the trick has been how do you how do you number one get those things to happen quickly and at scale and uh, and that's been uh, there have been some beautiful stories of that happening across uh, across the sector. But then also, how do you produce those things rapidly uh, here if you need to? And that's been a real challenge. Um, uh, but I think building that kind of adaptability into the economy is how we avoid this kind of stuff in the future and evolve our ability to cope. A question that I've raised a, a couple of times in this in this podcast series, and I'll put it to you now is the respect for experts and scientists and, and the people doing this work. There has been a, a pretty serious disconnect between what scientists have been saying and, and government policy, obviously with climate change, but I, I don't think it's just con confined to that. And so if we are to really move ahead, surely there is going to have to be a much more uh, serious underwriting and collaborative effort made between government and the nerds, I guess. <laughs> well, as, as probably one of the nerds, yeah, totally. Um, yeah. Um, but I, <laughs> um, <laughs> I've got a T-shirt. I'm sure I can send you one, uh, John. Um, but basically, I think, um, I think you're absolutely right. And expertise is a really 
interesting question for us, um, uh, kind of from a from a from a public policy point of view. On the on the one hand, it's often the closest thing to truth that we have. Um, the, the views of scientific experts um, is, is often unencumbered by um, a series of often, un, not always, often unencumbered by some of the ideological or knee-jerk reactions that we see in just general opinions that a person might hold, or indeed general opinions that you might see around Parliament. But at the same time... Well, that's time, right. I mean, a, a, a good scientist is a, is a cold-eyed pragmatist. If we left it up to the scientists, I think we'd just all be locked up for uh, for two months and eat your peanut butter sandwiches, suck it up, and, and, and we'll get this thing done. Well, I mean, there are two tricky things about expertise, though. One is it's the exact opposite of democratic, and that's its point, right? Like, that's why you like it. You like it because it doesn't rely on uh, consensus views per se. It doesn't rely on, uh, you know, it relies on a hierarchy of knowledge and understanding. So government working with experts is always a careful and difficult dance. That's one thing. The second thing is experts don't always agree. Um, and uh, And I think... This is, uh, you can see it a lot in this kind of, uh, in, in this pandemic, the scientific views and evidence is emerging in different kinds of ways, and it's shifting, particularly you see it around some of the point, point of care testing uh, work and the immunology of, of the virus, of the, of the coronavirus. Um, you can see that we're learning as we go. The expert opinion is, there are some open questions, it's shifting, it's changing, there are different schools of thought uh, amongst some of the experts. So I think expertise doesn't always speak with one voice. And I think that's one of the tricky things uh, about it as well. But you're completely right. We are dreadful as a general rule, as a modern, uh, uh, like um, our modern society is as a general rule, pretty dreadful at having productive, clear and coherent dialogues between expertise and public policy and political decision-making. That conversation, I think you're totally right, John, has, must be a focus for how we um, uh, move forward uh, in, across a range of different issues, from climate change to the ethics of technology through to any number of kind of science and society questions that are going to face us now and into the future. Look, uh, everyone's personally affected by this pandemic, and I tend to ask all my guests this, but how is it, how is it impacting your life personally? Well, John, I'm, uh, I'm in the happy situation of having the best wife in the world. So I'm locked, up, uh, I'm locked up at home. Uh, we're both there. We're both working uh, from home. Uh, and uh, this is uh, – um, we, were, we were joking the other day that I don't, we don't think that we've spent this much time together in the – in the 10 years we've been married or the 15 years we've been together. So actually um, it's hard to work and to, to run diverse and creative teams like, uh, like the ones that we have uh, at the lab and, and the other bits of RMIT and the MedTech actuator that I'm involved in. It's hard to run that at distance, but on the flip side, um, it's, uh, uh, I'm enjoying uh, I'm enjoying the um, the being with my wife in a way that we haven't uh, we haven't had this many sheer contact hours for a very long time. I love your answer. Mostly people say, oh, "I just can't wait to hug the grandkids," and you're, you're basically saying, "Look, forget about it. Happy with the misses. Life's good." That works for me. <laughs> Look, it's been wonderful uh, meeting you like this, Vishal. It's it's been terrific talking to you. I. 
It's a shame we've run out of time and, and thank you for joining me today. I'm keen to hear how the lab progresses. Uh, thanks so much, John. It, uh, brilliant to spend some time together. I really love the conversations that you're having through this pandemic crisis. I think they're really important. Uh, please keep, uh, keep going and uh, I'd love to catch up as a couple of nerds in the future. Thank you, sir. Well, look, next week I'm talking with an ethicist about the ethical challenges of the pandemic and how we respond to it. Thanks for listening and look after yourselves. <laughs>